Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. This is episode number 53 with Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Hi, my name's Hugh. How are you all? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> um, I suppose uh, it's always really interesting to be asked to introduce yourself because you don't know what to say or what people want to know. But in the in the one line sort of introduction of me, um, my name's Hugh Gilmore and I'm a sports psychologist. I work with Olympic and Paralympic athletes for the last decade and I am a trainer in motivational interviewing and I also am trained in rational motive behaviour therapy as well as just being you know a performance psychologist or a sports psychologist so yeah that's that's the, the, the top line overview yeah I feel as though it's like an overlooked part of health really is like your psychology and in my experience and I could be wrong but um, yeah I think it's really important so I'm excited to have you on um, so what work do you specialise in Hugh and like who are your typical clients so my main clients are essentially at the moment Paralympic powerlifters um, and previous I've worked with Olympic weightlifters, British athletics, um, and essentially high-level funded athletes who are preparing for either qualifying to go to the Olympics or Paralympics. Within that, my role is essentially is twofold. There's preparing people to develop as an athlete over maybe a 10-year career, helping them develop their their base to get in to qualify and then the other aspect is actually their ability to execute a performance under competition demands and again that's a different different sort of approach to psychology um because it's all about you know the delivery as opposed to the development so you can imagine for the general population you could look at it as developing your health and fitness is all the stuff you do that you add up over the months um whereas you know the execution part of it is probably more akin to something that you might do uh, in your life that is under pressure, such as making a public speech or a job interview or a big presentation, something like that, where there's actually a bit of pressure on you uh, for a good outcome over a short period of time. And you might be preparing for that. So there's the two different types of pressures, one that can you maintain and create consistency in your habits and behaviors so that you can improve the performance and your capacity to perform. And then two can you actually execute a performance um, under the pressure? Yeah, I feel like they're two separate skills almost, just in terms of like the consistency and kind of like, we'll call it like the longer term habits. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have like a typical approach for that, that, you know, listeners could relate to? So like, let's just well, say, for example, they had a, we- a wedding coming up maybe in like a year's time. And, you know, that's the kind of longer term goal, we'll call it, for example, that'd be, you know, a typical one. So yeah, you know, most marriages end in divorce, so there's no point in getting married. So that would be the first thing. Don't don't bother. <laughs> Realistic, um, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. I don't think most marriages end in divorce. But the point that I would make is if if you're actually preparing for something that's a big challenge, is that you often will put pressure on yourself to achieve a certain outcome or for, for it to go a certain way. You'll become maybe very rigid in your thinking and you might put demands on on yourself that it must go well. I should not fail. I shouldn't look silly. And then you might have secondary demands, such as if it does go bad, I will be a terrible person. People will judge me badly. Um, Or, you know, this will be 100% awful if it does go very bad. And the reality is that when you put those rigid demands on yourself, you create a pressure that is not not helpful for your performance. So when you sit down and go through a session with REBT, you'll actually look to identify any rigid demands that somebody might have and then dispute those and replace those with more flexible things, flexible beliefs, which would be more so along the lines of, I really want this to go well. However, if it goes bad, it doesn't say anything about me other than it was a bad day. You know, it was a bad experience. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person or that people won't like me. People will understand if I make a mistake, you know. Um, and this is, this is a much more helpful viewpoint, but it's also more logical because some people will show compassionate to you towards you not everyone will shame you for your terrible speech at the wedding or whatever um but then if we look into it actually that's making behavior change at a philosophical level you're changing the the perception of the demands you're changing well you're changing your philosophy about the demands on yourself if you go one level down you've then got cognitive so there's four levels four solutions to every problem top level is philosophy the next level down is cognitive which is how do i know that people will uh, think badly of me how do i know that it would be 100 percent awful how do you know you would question the cognitive thoughts that you're having or the, all thoughts are cognitive but you would question the um, the validity of the thoughts that you're having and then you would realize well actually you don't have the evidence you would have to find this out so again that would reduce the pressure on you the thing about the philosophy is the philosophy teaches you to go like if everybody did hate me because i did do a bad speech and i would just have to get on with my life with people hating me and that's that's brutally powerful 
Because if you think about this, if somebody has, say, social anxiety, they have social anxiety because they walk into a room at a party to give a speech or whatever, and they might think everyone hates me in here. And the philosophical behavior change is, how do I want to be in a room full of people that hate me? And if you go, right, everyone hates me, I accept that, and I'm going to treat them nicely, interact as best I can, and then leave and get on with my life afterwards. That's a powerful person. Like, that's, you're not going to mess with that person because they're worse, they're handling the worst case scenario. That's a philosophical level of behavior change. Cognitive, you will go, what evidence have I got? The, the level below cognitive change is behavioral change, where you actually are taught skills to cope under that. And that would be, right, I can take a deep breath and smile. I can work and have an open body language so people might approach me. I can think of some nice open questions, which will allow me to start a conversation. And I can come up with a, a way of listening uh, into what's been said and trying to acknowledge that people are talking about something and show interest. So that those behavioral skills will maybe be make you more interesting make you more capable and competent in that environment however it doesn't mean that that will work every time because you might generally walk into a room uh, full of people who hate you and in that case your skills aren't going to matter you know the the reality could be that could be the situation i don't know what your people who are listening to this have done you know if they've got roomfuls of people who hate them um, <laughs> but, but then the other the bottom level of change is situational and we often find this with professional athletes in that they have an entourage i only go into rooms with people with all my friends around me i i i I don't have to go into awkward situations. People do the things for me. So an example of this is I know a professional ice hockey player uh, and a psych went round to, to meet them to do a psych session in their flat. Um, and the uh, psych said, uh, yeah, you know, I'll have a coffee or whatever. And um, the ice hockey player said, well, sorry, uh, my maid isn't here at the moment and uh, I don't know how to make coffee. I've never made it before. So, and this is because they've they've had things done for them their whole life. But you can think about this, like you've been in a sports system like a soccer player in the UK since you're seven what what skills have you developed interpersonally and the ability to do normal everyday tasks minimal depending on what on your club so uh, professional athletes often end up with lots of situational uh, stressors removed because they have the money and the finances to have that created obviously your people listening could change the situation I don't go into rooms that I'm not welcoming or I don't go and put myself out to do speeches or whatever it is but that then is a is a weak position because it doesn't allow growth development or experiences you know it's avoiding the situation which is fine for some things but for sometimes we can't get away with avoiding it um, and it's not that any one of those methods is better than the other it's just that they all have different qualities and different costs and pros and cons um, I would obviously encourage people to look at the philosophical behaviour change because if you can nail that that's the most robust one um, that you would make so examples of this with athletes that I've worked with are people saying you know I have to win I must win that's outside of your control and you putting that pressure on yourself is actually causing you to tense up physically and because you're tensing up physically you're less limber you're going to run less fast so actually when people give up this idea that they have to win and they focus on what they have to do they're much more confident one of the skills that i would do and this is maybe useful for you is i do a very simple thing for motivational interviewing i ask them what is it uh what do you do when things go bad and describe a really bad performance and then what do you what do you do when things go good and actually hone in on the things they do the things they can control of before a competition and then what they find out is actually that what's the difference between those two things now we've identified that you know before a race they listen to music they focus on themselves they've got certain cues and things that they say to themselves that give them confidence they've got a certain race pattern or a race strategy that type of thing um that will allow them to focus in on, on what they have to deliver and as a result they perform better but the other thing that i'll do is they'll say have you ever felt like shit have you ever felt like shit and done a good performance and they'll all go yeah okay so see all that this idea that you have to feel good and you have to win actually you know that just because it's nice to feel good real good athletes the top athletes feel like shit and deliver a good performance so let's think about this if you have to give a speech at a wedding or you have a job interview well you practice it under difficult and shit circumstances so that you know that you can deliver that speech or deliver it or do that job interview even when you're on your off game and still put in a respectable showing or performance and a way you might do that is you might pressure test it so you might actually just go out in the street stand up on a, a, a box or a wall and just talk it out to the public you know give a present presentation in public or something I've actually recommended to somebody going for a job before is the slides for your presentation jumble them up and get, you know practice it jumbled up and then suddenly it's become really difficult and you have to like deliver this coherent presentation with slides that somebody else has jumbled up for you 
But then when it comes to the real thing, you know it inside out and you're flexible and you can adapt. You're not rigidly um, learning things by rote. So adding in pressure situations like that inoculates you against the pressure of delivering it. So if you were, for example, at a wedding, you know, you could imagine, you know, having to take pauses. What strategies would you do if you lose your line? You know, taking pauses, taking deep breaths, things like that. Or an easy one is, right, everybody, take a drink. <laughs> You know, so yeah. Sorry, that's a that's a long winded rant. I don't know if that's the answer you wanted, but it's the one you got. No, it's good. It's making me think of uh, the documentary, The Weight of Gold, about um, the Olympic athletes, and uh, they had uh, Phelps on, and he said he was just so focused on his training that he didn't have those skills outside. So it's kind of like he grew a lot in the pool, for example. But I guess he didn't, you know, work on the stuff outside, or it came at the cost of the stuff outside. That's what he has been working yeah. on since. Yeah, um, yeah. I so think elite athletes pay a big price for their performance, and they get they get a lot of success if it works out for them. But there's an awful lot of people who pay that price and don't get anything. Unfairly rewarded, you would say, is it? Um, well, I wouldn't want my child to be a professional athlete. Uh, and some sports are definitely worse than others. But I think that it can limit their development and perspective in life. Because I think if... Did you play any sports growing up? Yeah, bad, I played badminton for about, I think, about 10 years or so. Okay. And you probably got a lot out of that yeah it was like my foundation of sort of you know exercise and why i think i'm so passionate about it i guess yeah so like you got a lot out of badminton but also connected you with local club connected you with people and it was fun it was enjoyment whereas actually one of the things that i do is i sit down with people and go like look what you're bringing is great you're really really good and you're working really really hard but you're not improving enough so you're under pressure and you spend the next four years trying to keep hitting targets but as as you work towards those targets the it increases because you're closer to the game so you have to be even better so it's not a case of just you hit one target it's like right you've made six weeks of progress are you on track and then it moves and then are you on track it's continually trying to progress and the targets you have to hit are continually trying to increase and if you don't hit those then you start going off program and you essentially go from being funded athlete to a person without a job and if you haven't invested in your career or life then you could uh, you could end up in a position where you're finding life quite difficult so there's athletes i've worked with um have gone from being a funded athlete olympian you know a star on tv shows things like that and then off to working in coffee shops you know because they've no a levels no skills or qualifications um and like this is it's a common feature within professional football things like that um where you know once people are retired it's if they haven't you know saved the money or done appropriate things then what do they do next so if there's a lot of americans listening i think the stats around like nfl players uh going broke around 95 percent of them are broke within five years why is that because they're not been taught the ability to professionally manage money and the people who are around them when they have money soon disappear whenever they are whenever they are have have, have no money so like their whole lives begin to crumble so Again, that's a classic example of situational bubbling whereby all the stress is removed and as the career ends, the bubble bursts and they then have to do normal person things. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so you need to, to be well-rounded. It makes me think of, you know, a lot of people, they want to get like, you know, in, in my typical clients, like they want to get like really lean and have abs and stuff. And I'm kind of like the cost of that. It's it's mm-hmm. it's different, but it's, it feels sort of similar where it's like you kind of lose out on life in a way or sort of, you know, the, the goal becomes everything and you sort of lose out on like your social life connection yeah. with, I guess, maybe even yourself because you're trying to become like almost like an athlete but you're like you know maybe you're working nine to five so is there do you think there's a similarity there between athletes and maybe just someone from the general population no i absolutely do because you will also get this feature of hyper development occurring in people who are highly driven in the careers for example with high pressure careers or even like if you look at somebody who's just highly driven in their sport or highly driven in in their health and fitness what the way you want to look at your life is what are all the things i want to achieve so when i do a goal setting exercise with somebody i'll say what are all the things you want to achieve in your entire life S- spend five minutes writing it down on a page and then i'll do that again now do that for the next five years write everything you want to achieve in the next five years the next time frame is the next uh three years or a year and then the next time frame is six months and you spend five minutes doing that on a a4 page and then what you've got is everything that they want to achieve across their whole life and across these shorter term term time frames and then they get to pick two A goals off each page and two B goals so that's only four right and then they put those down and you've got a list of them from six months uh, a shorter term thing like a year or three years five years and then life and then what you see is that you've actually prioritized your goals and you've gone in my life I want this in this next six months I want this and that allows you to be a little bit focused on things but it also shows you all the other things that you put down are the things you have to sacrifice because you can't choose 
choose to be good at everything. And that's a really important thing. So like if you're trying to get abs, for example, what are the things you're going to miss out on? What And are they are they more important than abs? So like social occasions uh, that are bonding with family and friends. I think they're some of the most important things that we can do for our health and well-being is be socially connected. So if you're telling me that you're choosing to miss out on social connections with friends and family, I'd question how getting abs is going to be better for your health than having a social connection because social connection is so protective for mental health and also physical health. And what's really interesting about this is loneliness actually spreads, right? Loneliness is a contagious disease. And if you think about it, that sounds strange. You know, like if in a network, some person gets lonely, how does it spread? You know, because they're lonely. How does the loneliness spread? Well, it spreads because you've got three people who are friends and one of them sort of drifts off. Well, then those two people have one less person to connect to. So they become more lonely. And then if something breaks up, if the three of you were all meeting up and that it doesn't happen, then you get that that drifts apart. So loneliness is a contagious disease which actually spreads through social networks and it's there's a massive amount of health health and health implications for that. So like the opposite of that is actually social connection. Um but again, why are these abs important? And what are you telling yourself that these abs are going to say about you? Because and I say this with people who are going to the Olympic Games and Paralympics, you know, if you if you go to the cinema, right, does it make you a better person? Are there assholes or people who you don't like who buy tickets and go to the cinema? Can an asshole or a person you don't like or a person who you have an issue with and think is not a great person go to the Olympics or the Paralympics yeah so you go in there and you winning a medal or doing really well does that say anything about the quality of person that you are because if other people can go there and win medals and do stuff and they're not particularly nice people or people that you respect or different sports that you think are just idiots why is it you think that going there will say anything about you and the truth is it's just like going to the cinema anybody can buy a ticket you know the, going to the Olympics and winning a medal is just the same as buying a ticket it's just a bigger price tag and there's a bit of a genetic lottery and, and a talent lottery and an opportunity lottery going on as well but essentially it's a big price tag but none of it actually says anything about the person and that's the same with these abs it's like what's the price tag on them because just because you get them it's not going to change you it just means you've got less fat around your midsection that's that's it you know it's not doesn't mean you're good it doesn't even mean that you're committed and professional because you can get abs in ways that are not committed and not professional and it may be less you know if you think of this shows a value of hard work and commitment and dedication well, yeah, like if you neglect your kids, neglect other things and eat really poorly and sacrifice your health, that's not commitment and dedication and hard work. That's actually, you know, neglect. So again, it's like, what's the lens? What's the reason for doing it? What do you think it's going to get you? Um, but that, that by all means, like if you, if how you, if it's how you want to spend your time, there's no judgment here. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just, you need to, you need to evaluate it for yourself as to what it, what it means to you. Not for me to say that, you know. Um, so, yeah. So it's essential to be clear about any goal related to your health. Uh, is kind of kind of spelled out or you, you clearly understand why you've chosen because just you know the whole we'll just keep using the abs example I feel <clears throat> especially with something like Instagram social media it's kind of perpetuated that it's like health is abs or leanness and you know that's the best way kind of to be and it's like you know that's that could be true mm-hmm. you know sure that could be true for some people but like what does the individual person want and you know what would their individual version of health look like so um, yeah maybe just like reason, the question I'm kind of getting at is just how you, how you get to the kind of the, the underlying why behind why we choose something you know is, is that really yeah. important to, to spell out yeah massively so within rational emotive behavior therapy one of the techniques for understanding something is is our person's reasons and beliefs behind something is inference chaining so for example you go i, I want to get abs why do you want to get abs right and people will say well what does it say about you if you have abs but that's the wrong question the question is does it say anything about you if you have abs because the first question implies that it would say something or that something is said the second question leaves it open that it doesn't say anything but so the, the thing is what is it you would keep asking around the answers and the answers of the answers until you get down to their belief which might sound something like well look i believe i should have abs or i should have these abs because it will mean that i'm healthy because it means i'll be desired um or me people will like me um, or it will show that i'm successful you know or i want that picture so that people can like it like it on instagram and i'll have the likes and oh my god my life would be wonderful because i've got these likes um, and uh, I can just like count them up and then tattoo the number of likes I got on my forehead. Um, but the point being that what's really interesting about this is you, you mentioned 
Instagram. Is it is it healthy to need approval from other people? Because if you're actually looking for likes and looking for approval from other people, what you're actually doing is you're saying, I will become a clown or a slave, whatever you want to term you want to use for your approval. I will and I've I've used the example before. If I have to get approval of somebody, I will and you modify my behavior and I modify my behavior, you've become that person's slave because that person has holding the judgment of, you know, good people have abs and I like pictures of abs and I'm going, well, I need to get a like off them so I'll get some abs. I've now become their slave because I'm modifying myself to fit in with their worldview and I've lost my identity and who I am. So you shouldn't look for other people's approval uh, under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, It's it's nice if you get it, but if you're modifying who you are and your identity to get other people's approval, you're never going to be happy. And I think that's part of an issue with social media is that um, you know, well, the whole idea that you know you have to be liked and you know you have to have a instagram following and yeah it's quite quite what's the word toxic so the point the really good point here that i want to make is that if we look at psychology and how people get things wrong with psychology they think i have to be happy i'm doing this to be happy i'm setting my goals i'm doing my gratitude journal um you know pointing my face at the sun in the morning i've got my morning routine of you know, i've got all these nonsense things so i can be happy well, you know what? cbt or not what, what is the cbd that's as well or one of these kind of fad sort of supplements as well thrown in there for good measure oh yeah a bit of cbd as well and, and whatever else but like i have to be happy i have to be happy right you know what you don't have to be happy because you know what happy is a byproduct of working towards something that you want it's not something you try and get to so that's like trying to say um you know if you're thinking that abs are going to be the health or abs are going to make you happy that they're not the that's a byproduct of the journey um and the way i look at this is your emotions are things which are signals about how you are within emotions are is your emotions are signals about how you are in the world and what your experience is and if the world is shit and you're having a shit time it's good for you to have a shit emotion because then that's a signal to you and to others it communicates that things are not right and then you can act on it and when you get the emotion of happiness you go oh things are right and you can enjoy it it's just a signal but if you're chasing the signal then you're missing out on the whole thing because the whole thing is actually what are what are the things below the signal the beliefs that you have that cause it so I'll be happy when my son's laughing and playing and we're playing about because I'm like yes this is playtime this is fun this is development he's he's enjoying himself therefore I'm happy and, I, and I, you know that's good however if I go and I force him to play it's not going to be the same thing you it's, know, so you funny, force... it's so funny it's so funny to say that the minute you said son I thought of LeBron James and his son and it's like instantly it was like LeBron James will be happy when his son and him play in the league together because that's actually like a dream of him uh-huh. and know? again that, well, that's that's really weird because like he's just gone and like slapped on a life onto his son and a demand that he wants out of his son and that's not really accepting his son pretty shit parenting um, <laughs> if I'm honest because it's a lot of pressure um, but you know unless the child really wants that and that's what the child's dream is too it's a whole a lot of whole lot of unpacking in that so where am i going with this the point i'm making is that we don't chase things thinking the things make us happy um or chase the happiness or chase the the, the abs because those are the byproduct of what we get from a way of living so you get abs if you eat well you train hard um and you use your body functionally and that will come and as a result of that you'll have a body that looks like somebody who uses it well and is well fed uh, as opposed to the other way around so it's like really letting the tail wag the doll, dog um yeah so with beliefs how would someone get started on figuring out their beliefs because it's kind of like it's it's it feels like trying to unearth you know something that's sort of like locked away almost you know because like okay. a lot of people will have these beliefs that they'll pick up or um they just won't be front and center of their mind but they'll just be kind of acting in the world like you know i want the abs or i want to you know bench you know 100 kilos or 225 but they kind of they might it's hard to get down to the core of it you know yeah there's there's three there's three core beliefs that we pretty much think make up most of our experience um and the, the these core beliefs are like three healthy core beliefs that are useful and they're actually USA ULA and UOA so unconditional self-acceptance is USA unconditional other acceptance and unconditional life acceptance and quite often what we find is we do things when we aren't accepting of one of those states so I am not happy with the amount of money I make therefore I do not currently accept uh, the state of my life and because of that I might become disturbed and that doesn't mean that if, if say for example I have no job 
job and I'm not making money that I can't strive towards that. It's just that I'm refusing to make myself uh, unhealthily or unhelpfully disturbed by it because I'm accepting the fact that I currently don't have any money and that I need and want to do something about it to make things easier for myself. But if I was placing a demand saying this is unacceptable, this is terrible, it means I'm a bad person, it means other people won't love me, it means that uh, I can't, I just can't stand uh, being broke. That is a much more dangerous position to be in than somebody who's like, well, look, I accept the fact I don't have any money right now, but I'm going to work hard and try and do something about it. I really don't want to have any money. I really don't want to be in this position, but it is what it is and I need to get on with working towards it. I don't need it to change, but I'm going to try and change it. That's a much more beneficial position to be in. So your beliefs, I've summarized this for the lay people as F me, F you, F it. If you find yourself saying the F word and adding a F you, F me or F it on the end of it, you're probably highlighting that you, one of those core beliefs is being breached um, where you're not accepting things. And again, the way to get down to this is whenever you're discussing with yourself, why why do I want these things? Is that inference chain into what is like five whys, you know, five, five levels down? Where do you get to? At what points? What's the lowest level of resolution? And it tends to be something along the lines of, look, I don't accept myself if I don't do this, or I want other people's approval, um, or my life is crap, I don't do this. So those tend to be the quickest sort of shortcuts to it. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, so what I'm thinking of is like, you know, let's just say, for example, Messi and Ronaldo, we could say that the best players in the world in soccer, or football, I should say, correction, not soccer. And uh, you could say if, you know, I'm just going to guess, Messi's very accepting, right? He's more accepting than Ronaldo, right? So Messi got to the top with less sort of stress or less like, you know, side effects in terms of like, I don't know, personal distress or something. Whereas maybe Ronaldo, his route to the top, he got he still got to the same place, right? But like, it, there was like more side effects because of his yeah. beliefs, like we'll say Messi's, you know, and this is just purely me, like this is just the way I look at the two of them now. But uh, so there's no, like, this is not based in fact at all, but it's just sort of like, um, yeah, Messi kind of maybe is like a more well-rounded person and Ronaldo is more like, you know, unbalanced or something. And yeah, they, they still well, got the goals, but yeah. yeah. Well-rounded is kind of like a judgment about that that human being and that's again something we would discourage because that's not going to be, be beneficial because if I was to try and judge you I'm not capable of actually doing that because I, I'm not able to measure all of the facets about you and I don't know what the future of your life will hold and I don't know what you've done in the past so it's very difficult to say that but I like the way you're going with that and what I'd say is a good way of thinking of this is if I have the belief that I should have a Ferrari right or I should have abs and then the, you might have a secondary belief of and if I don't and then you can fill in the blank there of why it would be bad if you didn't have that that's quite an intense belief whereas if I had the belief of I really want and I'd prefer to have abs or a Ferrari but I don't need to have abs or a Ferrari in order to work towards achieving that or in order to save for it or order to put, to put the effort in or order to get on with the rest of my life see what I mean so one of those beliefs will allow you to have then that will, that belief will cause a healthy emotion um, like I'm a bit frustrated that I don't have this but I'm going to work towards it whereas the other belief of I should have this might make me angry and if I'm angry then I might start hating myself I might get pissed off I might be grumpy I might isolate myself so it's not about the it's not about not having a negative emotion it's about having a negative emotion that results in a quality that is adaptive and useful to your goal um, does that make sense? Yeah I, I feel as though it's like you're having a range you're having a goal so one person could have a goal and it's very hard and sort of fast or like black and white and then another mm -hmm. person has like a range for their goal so it's like yeah. I want to have abs but you know um, if I get my body fat within this range or whatever you know I'll also be happy in those situations as well you know just, mm -hmm. just stick to the ad thing I feel like we're belaboring this yeah, point we could be laboring this point and we can move on but I think that you've hit the nail on the head it's about having a range but then that range allows for accessibility and adaptable behaviours um, on a daily basis that can help you move towards your goal whereas the other one may produce unadaptable behaviours that may limit you and you may then self-sabotage so as an athlete it feels like reflection is almost essential to know like right this goal that I have if I or not even as an athlete just like as a person or anyone with a health goal so if you if you have a health goal but you're not reflecting on like your process of how you're moving towards that goal or just your process of moving you know I guess forward for that goal you're never going to really know if maybe your process that you have like this belief that uh, you have is it, is it helping you is it hurting you is there, a, is there a better way I could be doing it yeah so a really a really good way of looking at this is that athletes will maybe have the belief that I have to win and they work really hard and that's great and it works they get somewhere and they do well and they might even go on to win and be their best athlete 
probably ever but they hit a stumbling block where they go up a level or they get injured or they have a setback or something occurs their strategy which has driven them their belief is now not useful in that context and that's what it needs to change so you can have an absolute belief which is really useful but as soon as you hit uh, an issue you you then are at risk of underperformance or worse a really good example of this is David Goggins so he's become quite popular um, but he's you know oh stay hard you know stop being a bitch and all this sort of stuff and you know, go for it but the dude if I'm mis- not mistaken did a lot of running uh, on stress fractures and this is one of the things that made him famous about you know doing all, all this excessive running while being in terrible physical condition and just suffering but like, you have to ask yourself what's the price that's been paid for that because if say for example that had a bit exacerbated those stress fractures um, and then actually resulted in a proper fracture and maybe that proper fracture was occurred while maybe going off a curb and he then severed a nerve and then lost the ability to you know to use his foot you're then going like actually wait a minute this idea of just suffering and being a badass and going you know as hard as you can all the time while it's adaptive in one sense it gets you somewhere it also has risks that could be moderated by wait a minute the amount that I suffer doesn't say anything about me so his core belief is probably going to be something like you know I must not be weak I must not be um, uh, beaten by my mind I must always be in control that's lovely and it sounds great but in the wrong context it's lethal um, so yeah and what what are some ways to protect against that because I feel like that message of you know work hard you know uh, sort of like um, when you the more you, it, it, what he says of like the, you know the more you suffer sort of like the more um, you're likely to kind of succeed type of thing almost um, and that just whole like stay hard ethos and sort of almost like very resolute in your belief and uncompromising rigid inflexible you know yeah how do you kind of protect against falling into that when, when he seems to be doing you know if you didn't know any better or you, you didn't kind of double check what he's saying you would think oh this guy is you know doing well for himself based on all the honours he's got he's got a following and books and all this kind of stuff yeah so my question would be is what you do if what you do is 100% perfect in the right way you're not in a performance realm that's not high performance because that is a simplistic and absolute way of looking at things every action that you do has costs and benefits and every action that you do has negative consequences and also positive consequences and then those consequences will have secondary positive consequences and secondary negative consequences and you get this cascading effect so what you want to think of is like right if I go to the gym and I do a bad session okay and my last lift is terrible and I mess it up I might go out of the gym and people say that's terrible did a bad lift they did a bad session right what we know from skill acquisition theory is that if your last lift is terrible you're going to learn the skill faster because you then leave the gym pissed off angry and annoyed and you think about what you did and you come back in and you do better so actually difficult uh, experiences where you experience failure result in in greater long-term skill acquisition so you can think about it like skateboarders skateboarders learn by picking their teeth up and getting on with it they learn through failure right but it's that failure is useful but the way Goggins is approaching um, you know endurance capacities things like that is that he's not allowed to fail he's not allowed to stop he's not allowed to sort of take a, take a step back and reflect on it now I'm like I haven't read all of the stuff I'm just going from what I see in the social media so correct me if I'm wrong and I also uh, I would say I'm not one of these people who calls people out or um, or targets people like that I'm, all I'm just pointing out is you know an idea that's he's maybe proliferated in the way he's going at it's important not to um, ridicule people for how they exist or what they choose to do um, I'm just exploring the ideas behind it um, so yeah I, th- I think that kind of makes sense there is that if you look at what are the consequences and you look at the positive and negatives and you can do that with every action then you're, you're then thinking in a high performance setting because sometimes negative events will cause more positive uh, development uh, later on um, there's also um, a thing called beta region beta region paradox I'm not too sure if you've heard of that but it's essentially it's like a wake up call right so you can have somebody who's like going along and they're not really getting on with the behaviour change and then they experience a moment of failure and because of that moment of failure they then change their experience and what that actually shows is that the moment of failure causes a bigger impact on them and then they have a a quicker change of behaviour and reach a higher level of performance so if you're somebody who's like stuck in this zone of things aren't going that well and you're not failing and you're just being consistent you might not actually be improving whereas if you have a massive failure you could then result in actually quicker changing how you 
operate and move up to higher level. So the the paradox is that somebody might undergo a significant setback and then as a result of that, make a faster and bigger change where somebody who is able to survive without changing doesn't actually learn and grow and develop. Um, so in that speed of region paradox of yeah. basically w- wake up call. Uh, when, when do you get your wake up call? After 10 years of doing the same thing or after 10 weeks and then having a massive failure and then starting to do, look at what you do differently. Yeah, so it's kind of like sort of introspection or introspection or just kind of, yeah, yeah. sit on your approach. Yeah, so uh, being a little bit more specific. So like one of the posts you had was about uh, psychology for a power lifter. Mm-hmm. What are some kind of general, you know, guidelines and tips you would give uh, to someone uh, going for a meet? Uh, hopefully I'll compete okay. better this year. Um, and it's funny, right. actually, I just trained with a friend recently and he was cycling himself out. He's going for a one rep max. And it was very interesting to watch. And, you know, I have that little bit of, you know, I, I understand a little bit of psychology. So I was kind of just like, you know, I knew not to sort of like push him and, and try and get him to like do anything he didn't want to do. I was just sort of just trying to be encouraging. But it was an interesting situation with knowing a little bit of psychology. So, um, yeah, what, yeah, what are some general so guidelines? Yeah. There's a, f- a few things I would do is one, confidence comes from doing things that you have done before. So practice in your competition gear to the competition commands within the gym and the training environment, even live stream your training, because then that's putting you under pressure of people watching you. All right. But then if you think about like how you warm up for a competition, some of the stuff that we'll do is we'll go, oh, um, the warm up, the, the bar weight has changed. Your warm up is now shorter or longer. So you then practice warming up slowly and warming up really quickly because in a meet, you're, the way that you warm up uh, might be affected by the timings of the comp. So like things like that that go wrong in competition environments, incorporate those into your training so that you then are ad- able to adapt to those. Um, the other thing that you talked about there about psyching up, we call that pre-performance routine. So within a pre-performance routine, you will have a way of conducting yourself that gets out the best possible performance from you. And that develops over time automatically. It's not like a ritual, um, like a superstitious thing. It actually has uh, significant features, which would be maybe some self-talk internally or externally where you say something to yourself, maybe some imagery, maybe some emotion that you're trying to create, um, and maybe a certain level of physical arousal as well. But again, it's important to realize that you can be too aroused um, and you can like get too psyched up, if you know what I mean. And again, can you then down-regulate that? Can you bring it back? So knowing what is the routine or sequence of things that you do in terms of thoughts um, and behaviors and, and uh, self-talk, things like that, to create uh, the optimal environment for you lifting. And what that does, that actually uh, takes up your mental capacity and gives you something to focus on so that you don't get distracted. Because if you think about this, you'll have had the experience where you're walking or driving maybe, and you know, you've know you just arrived at your destination. You're like, wait, how did I get here? And it's because you're really, really good at walking or driving that you didn't have to think about what you do. So you're thinking about all these other things and then you just arrived. The danger with that is that you then miss out the in a performance set and you miss out the actual intensity of what you're trying to do because those are basic things that you've become autonomous. So it's not high performance. It's actually just habit and you're not conscious of it. Whereas in a meet, you're trying to be very conscious and very intentful with your lift. So you want to do that pre-performance routine so it fills up the fills up your the rest of your head with this pattern that creates familiarity and confidence so that you can then focus exactly in on the right amount of uh, your effort on the lift. What we find is that athletes who are really experienced have a more um, developed pre-performance routine because they need that because they're so used and so confident at lifting that they need to be able to occupy their, their head with this pattern beforehand and that produces a better result. Whereas novice lifters, you know, if you think about your first meet, you nearly don't even have a pre-performance routine because you, you know, if, if it's the first time you're lifting, you're so engrossed in actually just doing the basics of the lift that you don't have the opportunity to think of all this other stuff. So you're fully engrossed in that so you maybe don't need one, you know. Um, the other thing is having a good conversation with your coach beforehand, like this is what I like, this is what I want to do, this is what I don't want to do, these are the things that you can do to help me, these are things that you can do would really piss me off and, and put me off in the day. Um, and yeah, I think the other thing is there'll be certain points. I remember telling uh, an athlete that I worked with, it was like the final Commonwealth Games and I said to him, look, you're coming to me stressed out about this and that and other. This is your last games. The biggest thing you have to do is go out, take a look around, take a deep breath, smile, take it all in, be in the court and just realize that this is one of the highlights of my career and I just want to have a memory here. And literally they went out and did that before every game and said it was the best best games they had just because it took the pressure of it and allowed them to step back and go, well, wait a minute, you know, this is not all about winning. This is about sport. This is about memories and things like that. But again, that can be the situation you can connect to a different set of values in any stressful situation. Like if, say, for example, you work in a highly stressful job and it's not a nice job, there's difficulty, you know, you can just go, well, what are the what are the big things that brings meaning into this job? I, you know, provide a service which is meaningful and I can connect with other humans and how can I just take a step back and, and center into that, you know? So again, things like that. So th- those would be some of the tips I would offer. Interesting. So I think you said uh, we gain 
gain confidence by doing things repeatedly. So what if someone hits, you know, a PR in a competition, for example, like on, on the powerlifting floor that they just haven't hit before? Would that not be the most kind of confidence inducing more yeah. so than okay. doing something repeatedly? So that's, a, that's a really good example. Um, whenever you hit a PR, you've n- you're now in a heightened state of risk. You've just pushed your body to a position which it's never been in. And therefore, you don't know if what the capacity is beyond that. And you also, ridiculously enough, have been then gifted with this big, massive ego boost of, whoa, PB, which is then a danger for making stupid decisions. So like elite athletes, when they set one PB in the gym, they'll go, right, I know I shouldn't go for a second one. Whereas an amateur will go for a second one because the second one is the high, the highest risk. So again, this is part of you know, competition strategies will be knowing what you have in the tank and what is likely. Um, so you, most people will try and set a PB on the, maybe the second lift um, or the last lift um, of, of whatever lift they're doing. And that way, you know, they're in a safe zone. Whereas if you go out trying to set a PB in the first one, then that'll be a little bit little bit brash um, if you're an experienced lifter. Um, now, where am I going with this? So confidence, if you look at um, the research and confidence from Albert Bandura, mastery, the previous ability for you to have done something so whenever I use the example I say if I told you to get up now walk out of the house and go to your front garden right you could do that and that's because you've been walking for quite a period of time you're confident you know where it is and you can go there and you could do that without falling over but when you were learning you fell over lots we just have childhood amnesia so we forget that we fall over what will we then seek to do within the gym environment to do lots of falling over and learning and learn the parameters to create opportunities for mastery so outside of the you know competition window like maybe six to eight weeks outside of that I don't want to be put doing anything that's going to reduce your confidence like putting new things in new challenges big changes I want everything to be supportive showing you that you're good showing look here's your numbers in the gym this is the stats you put up today this is you know this predicts this next lift no that's good whereas three years out what I want to do is create lots of challenge lots of stress lots of uh, you know opportunities for you to feel that you then develop this robustness and then that then allows you to develop and change what you do so it becomes more repeatable um, so you get the most confidence if you've done something before hence why trying to replicate things prior to that is the the best way to build it the other things that can build confidence are acknowledging what emotional state you want to be in with it when you're doing that that, and actually then trying to create that emotional state verbal persuasion from other people or yourself and then also there's another one called vicarious experiences which is if this works for other people like me then it will be uh, more likely that I can do that so for example Manny Pacquiao uh, the boxer all the kids from uh, his area going he can box and he did it and he's from here so they go off and do boxing because they, they they get confidence from that um, but this is the other thing there's another, there's another type of confidence called general confidence where it's actually this works for humans like taking paracetamol taking paracetamol works for humans it works for these humans to stop peeing it works for me to stop peeing so again another way you could look to build confidence is go like what works for other people just in general and you know that you know for other people doing these things builds their confidence it builds their capacities therefore if you copy that you'll build uh, capacity in that providing you and the more you relate to them the more likely that will work as well so those are the main tenets of confidence but what's really interesting for motivational interviewing is we use affirmations and affirmations a high level reflective skill where somebody will say to you not that's good or that bad but actually your coach might say what you've just done displays the rate of force development and the leg strength needed for a pb in three weeks time and it doesn't say whether it's good or bad it just gives you the information and then you go in your head you think is that good or bad do i like that oh i do like that no i feel confident whereas if i just go oh that was a good squat it doesn't mean anything you know it's the same as saying actually it's actually the same as saying that was a bad squat so specificity of achievement breeds then more confidence but it's a skilled coach that can bring that out or a skilled person that if you can actually evaluate your practice and go right what specifically things did I do that look good today and why were they good not just what was good it's interesting you bring that uh, specific feedback back so I have a friend who's a music producer and he does not like someone saying that his music is good because he's like what the hell do I do with that so he's actually told me what he wants me to say to him <laughs> so I know I can't say his music's good or bad. I have to tell him specifically why it's good or why it's bad. So it's like um, you can actually, to your point, you can actually do more with more uh, specific feedback. So yeah, could you use that for yourself as an individual or was it just work with your coach? No, you could become skilled at using it with yourself and it would basically be a case of sitting down and going, right, what did I do well today and why was it good? And then when you start identifying the why, that's and, and does that say anything about me? So I did a training session today and I didn't want to. What does it say about me? Does 
does it say anything? It says I'm committed. Oh, a little bit more confidence. A little, you know, a little bit of confidence came in there because I've identified a positive feature that I think is useful in my endeavors or goals. So that would be a, a useful way to review training practice would be identify. I, I generally like what went well, three things that went well and what does that say anything about me? Oh, how does that How does that help me and towards my goal? So if you do something like that, that will boost your confidence as well. I feel as though a lot of like what you're uh, recommending, like the tips, it's kind of like metacognition. So thinking about thinking. So instead of just going and almost white knuckling and get a workout done and being like, that was a good thing. I got it done. Or, you know, I stuck to my diet or whatever. It's kind of, it's almost like uh, thinking a little bit deeper about like what exactly was going on or your, you know, um, process, your beliefs and the whole reflecting on a deeper level is much more useful than just taking it at face value. Depends on when you do the reflecting on a deeper level, because if you do reflective practice or you think deeply about things, it can become anxious, anxiety producing if you do it wrong. Because if you continually look at things and evaluate things, then you just occupying your head with an obsession that's actually, can you knock us out in 15 minutes at the end of the session and then let it be? It's not not a permanent endeavor. It's one of the biggest criticisms of actual training to be a psychologist or a sports psychologist is they teach you more so how to develop anxiety than they do reflective practice because they just teach you all about the risk and the issues without actually teaching you like what is acceptable level of risk and how to just go well that's what it is and move on um so the other aspect of this is you would only you only do something if there's an issue to add change to a program because you can is you know not not a good thing to so look like, why do if you if you currently you know say you're currently deadlifting 200 kilograms and you're getting ready to go for 210 and you've got a training program that you think will get you that pb at the next meet or whatever why do you need to add in more psychology stuff because the more psychology stuff you add in the less focus elsewhere and this is one of the biggest things that people think about performance as additive little bricks that they add in oh, add in a little bit of psychology add in a bit of nutrition add in a bit more physio add in some programming but your performance isn't additive you're a complex system of interacting part within your body and externally in a, in a system of people and you're much more like a super site look you've got all these ingredients if I chuck something in everything interacts in a synergistic effect and then I have to taste it and go how does it taste now oh it's just a bit better and you don't when you add in a little bit of salt to your soup you don't go and right add in loads more salt that was really effective because it's interactionist you know it's it's actually it's about the ratios and how things interact and work together it's not about just adding in components so there's a there's a cost to adding in a component uh, or a behavior change thing which which is what this metacognition would be of thinking about thinking the cost is that it takes energy and focus off other things that might also be important and need to be maintained so the way to create high performance is to strip out the unnecessary look at a jcb for any americans listening that's a digger do you use the word digger over there i'm not sure yeah uh yeah i'm not yeah well, well i assume they do right okay so a, a digger like a, a big thing with shovels stuff that have um, building sites so a digger or a caterpillar you know what a caterpillar is so something like that um they're built to do everything and work well and last but they're not built for performance a formula one car is built for performance because essentially it's like what are all the things it doesn't need are taken out of it there's no windscreen there's no roof you know everything is removed so it can do one thing really well and it's designed it's not overly designed so that we'll do like a car last three seasons all the cars are like repaired and refurbished after and stripped down and rebuilt so they're designed to last for the specific amount of time and that's the highest performance it could be the minimum level of componentry to get the maximum level performance over the the course of you know the season or whatever it is it's not about over engineered um so you want to think about your performance as like actually the more i take out the more focus i can have on things that are more the most value and the most important so what can you actually remove is probably the first thing i do to any athlete is like right what's what's the things that are holding you back and how do we get rid of those it's funny you say that i had a, a conversation where i was um just reviewing the, the work that had been done and uh the person was like yeah i'm gonna do that and i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do that and i was like i would recommend actually keeping it simple and the person just was like no just i'm gonna do as much as i can so sort of the opposite of what you've just recommended but it's very useful because it actually you could end up doing less and having more time for other things like outside of your health for example if it was the health sphere where we're talking about well it's really interesting like behavior change when do, does people stop with their uh behavior change they stop whenever they ha- add in a second level of behavior change so you know if you're if you're quitting smoking and you start to try and change your diet you then go back to smoking you're more likely to because you don't have the willpower or effort because that stopping smoking hasn't become a sustained change so it's about maintaining sustaining developing and normalizing that level of behavior before adding in something else and this is really interesting because if anybody's listening who is a software developer and does project management they'll know of uh or they might know of a thing called kanban which is like a, a project management software approach and one of the things it has is work in progress limits so when you break down all the tasks you have to do you're like well we have a, a limit on how many tasks we're allowed to be working on and that's because that means things get done because you're not then spreading your energy over all the different 
tasks, you actually focused in on a priority of things. And funny enough, that's exactly what I talked about at the start of this call when we talked about goal setting. And it was actually, you know, pick two and label them A goals, pick two, label them B goals. You have got four. It's not everything. So it's, it's the same principle all in different spheres. Very good. Yeah, I'm, I was actually going to ask just on the goal setting. So um, is goal setting for, let's just say for health, just to keep it kind of, you know, more general, uh, is it a, to progress towards a goal? Is it just absolutely essential that you have goal, goal to, to make progress with anything? Is it essential to have a goal or could you have it sort of undefined and say like, I wanted to improve my health. I wanted to feel better or I wanted to improve better. And you could make progress with a vague sort of target in mind. No, um, one of the things that is wrongly assumed is that goal setting is this big magic thing that is really useful and you have to sit down and set smart goals. And actually most people have some sort of half baked formulated goal in their head and that might be enough. That might be okay. However, when things go wrong, the better shape and more specific goals will allow for more learning and feedback to occur. So it's like how much effort do you want to put into goal setting? Enough that it works, but not too much that it's a waste of time. And that's probably an iterative process where you try it, see what happens, then try and be a different way of setting your goals. The way that I've highlighted basically creates priority across different timeframes and then you then decide how you're going to work on those and that'll help you sort of get a grasp on what you're actually really working towards. And I think the big thing there is that it provides meaning in your life when you go like, what are all the things I want to achieve in my life? Because there's probably an underpinning why or what's important um, and why is this important to me is setting that up. Whereas focusing on what you want to do in the next two weeks doesn't really matter if the rest of your life is falling to pieces, you know? So that's why this bigger picture thing helps out. Um, the other issue with goal setting is goal setting can be maladaptive and cause problems. So eating disorders are a classic example of I need to get down to a certain weight and you set this quantitative number and that then results in somebody being over obsessed about the number and maybe then potentially without the proper information developing an eating disorder. But again, goal setting is also what caused the financial collapse in Enron is again, that was caused by poorly set goals around quantitative measures and not qualities um, of qualities of financial decisions being made. And again, within climbing Everest, people set the goal of getting to the top of Everest. That's not the goal. The goal is to get to the top of Everest, not die, get back down and not lose any fingers or toes. Right. And this is why Everest is littered with dead bodies because people set their own goal. So if you set a quantitative goal and you don't set a qualitative goal or a meaning behind it or a why, then you could end up messing messing things up and having really bad consequences. And you see this in the gym when people say, I want to get, you know, big squat. Great. But it looks as if your spine is going to pop out your ass. You know, it's like you need to you need to have the quality movement, not just the numbers on the bar. I don't know how you've seen my squat, but I'll take down the clip wherever it is online. <laughs> Um, so how would you kind of safeguard against, you know, setting like or safeguard against ineffective goal setting? Can you just talk that, about that a little bit? Because yeah. it is January as well. So, you know, people yeah. are setting. It's probably, uh, it'll be interesting to, if there's any studies on, you know, the population's goal setting this time of year versus other times of year. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of research on, you know, people's goals tend to fail because they're set. They're not fully formed or fully set uh, goals. They're more so like desires, the first stages of goal setting as opposed to like committed goal setting. And I think like one of the biggest things that's really useful is if then plans and if then plans are again another part of goal setting which um, is research done by Gabrielle Ottigen, uh specifically within health and fitness but with also other types of behaviours as well it results in about 30% improvement um, in some cases or more um, and it's very simple it's like if scenario A, B or C occurs most likely scenarios which will provide a challenge to me then I will what and you write out what you do so if uh, I get an injury then I will and you write it your injury plan if I fall off the wagon and my dad goes to shit for a day then I will what right so you get your plan in place for your obstacle and then because of that you're more likely to uh, experience an obstacle and overcome it and have less of a setback whereas people set goals and don't actually plan for the setback because that's negative thinking it's like actually thinking negatively about these things means you're planned and prepared there's even research um, on imagery and the use of imagery within the police that was my next question and, yeah imagery yeah yeah so basically they did a, uh, a test where the the police were kitted up armed with paint bullets and they had to go into a live fire scenario and they did the scenario and those who did imagery beforehand performed better so then they changed it they then had the scenario where they were going to get shot while in the scenario and again those who imagined getting shot and returning fire did outperformed those who just imagined not getting shot and uh, just you know neutralizing the target so actually thinking in advance about what can go wrong and prepared to deal with that resulted in uh, better levels of performance so and that was just done 
the civil imagery task the, the groups that didn't do imagery and that had to sit and watch like an episode of a TV show while the other groups were doing imagery so like they were being mentally occupied so couldn't prepare and they had worse outcomes um, so again prepare for the worst and you'll more than likely get more success there's an app called WOOP Whoop uh, Whoop My Life which actually looks at and I recommend it to people at times um, and it's a, it's a way of essentially working through Gabriel Ottergen's process in a more fuller method which is what's the wish you have what's the outcome you want what's the obstacle you face and what's your plan um, so it's a very simple app and you can set that up with whatever it is your, your goal and that's a useful method I'd recommend as well yeah because goals are quite challenging to, to achieve even to set a goal effectively is, is challenging so um, something like that simple approach to whoop like in your experience how effective is it because it sounds in theory oh yeah that would definitely help but does it actually play out that it actually helps for most people I, I had an athlete who was very afraid that he would get a hamstring injury when he put it on his spikes because when you wear spikes what that does is that increases the rate of force development uh, or the capacity for you to use rate of force development uh, and you create more power and if your body's not used to that because it's the first time you wore spikes you're more likely to get injured and of course you only start wearing spikes when it comes close to the competition and he was concerned about this and I said right okay what's the plan if you get injured uh, well if I get a hamstring injury which is most likely then I would assess the damage arrange for physio get it iced uh, protect it um, uh, keep it mobile keep moving through you know just rule out a full injury plan like it was a 28 point this is an experienced international athlete um, it was a 28 point injury plan you know like of, of detail of what would occur went to a competition did his hamstring and he was uh, trying to get ready for the world championships and he said it was the first time he's ever got an injury and never been stressed because he got the injury he was like okay I know exactly what I'm doing went straight into this, this uh, injury plan executed it perfectly and was still able to go on to the world championships and compete you know so and that was three months out from the world championships so again it is a it's a process I've seen work all the time with athletes like we've done it with like you know, what if you miss the first two lifts what if you bomb in competition all that you know so it'll be a, a routine part of our preparation for competition as well it, it makes me think of that quote that uh, perfect practice makes perfect I don't know if that's been kind of like it's gone but it's kind of just like you can't practice perfectly so like it's like it's it's uh, preparation you know it's, it sounds like far more important through imagery yeah um, it's the ability to prepare for things that are challenging will, will definitely help you and you're not you're not looking for perfect you're looking for, you're looking to be the best you can be in, in perfect scenarios you know imperfectly prepared really prepared for circumstances and still do the best possible performance that's what elite performance is it's not it's not about everything going right it's about everything you can make go right when everything goes wrong that that to me is like the epitome of what a top level performer can do yeah so it's like being an adaptable athlete or a flexible yeah. athlete yeah, brilliant. yeah I always like to say I'm never prepared but I'm always ready you, you might have gathered that from how this podcast started that's brilliant though yeah I like that because uh, if you have that mindset then you can almost like you know figure out a situation um, and you don't need as much to get ready yeah brilliant. I mean it's like, it's like this podcast is like I could have made a load of notes I could have you know hyper prepared for it but I didn't I've just got what I've got and that'll do and it will be you know good enough um, I think that's that's the thing is like you'll do your best and take in control what you can but you don't need to be over prepared you don't sorry you don't need to be you don't need to be overly perfectionistic and controlling with things that you can't do because I don't necessarily know what tangents we might go on you know and you can I feel like you could almost practice that as a skill so like you know maybe going for a workout and forgetting your belt on purpose or forgetting your cup of coffee before the gym on purpose or mm-hmm. yeah little throwing in little challenges or for example I run as well so it's like maybe you know actually going out and running in the rain because it, it might actually run on or sorry <laughs> it might actually rain on on race day for example yeah that, and that, that's that's those are perfect examples you there, there's a, an approach to pressure training um, which looks at changing the demands of the competition excuse me there's an approach to pressure training that looks at changing the demands of the task the judgments that you might experience uh, the fatigue levels that you might be under the consequences you might uh, experience um, so like you might add in like forfeits for example into training uh, if you're training with somebody else so those things are all ways of modulating the pressure you're under to simulate competition demands or the emotions and feelings and challenges you might get from competition so that you can then go on and, and uh, do a better job so I mean that's the basics of uh, it's also the basics of exposure therapy really um, in terms of curing phobias because it, it comes from the same sort of line of, of thinking one is how do I create something as similar as possible to that so that you are then not stressed out when you're in that emotional state or cognitive state because you're then 
familiar with that emotional and cognitive state and behavioral state, it's no longer a stressor to you. So you then can perform better. Yeah, the exposure. Yeah, I like that. So a common thing that I see is like, you know, things didn't go my way or I got unlucky and, I, you know, I couldn't exercise as I would like or I couldn't eat as I would, I would like or the weekend was tricky. How do you, I feel like there's a way kind of based on what you've said to flip that and sort of be like, I'm, I'm not, I can't, the kind of the words are sort of evading me, but it's almost yeah. just like, um, almost the phrase well, that you had about getting ready. You know, it's kind of, things are yeah. never going to be perfect as well at the same time. It's actually going to be yeah. more imperfect than perfect. So it's kind of like with that in mind, how do people approach their health, you know? Yeah. So uh, seeking perfectionism. And this is really interesting when it comes to like just health and fitness is that people often overemphasize things that are not important. You know, oh, I, I didn't have my coffee um, at such such time or whatever. It's like, oh, I didn't eat right. It's like, okay, brilliant. That's one one blip in one day. It's not that meaningful, right? Uh, one day, one hour, one week is not meaningful um, to your goals or your if, if you're in search of health. If you're in search of performance, it might be slightly more meaningful. But if you're in search of health, health is 20 years of consistency, you know, consistently enjoying using your body, consistently exploring and eating wholesome foods. And that consistency is not achieved on a daily basis. It's achieved on all of the days whereby there's fluctuation between like, you know, within a range of what is a good day and what is a bad day. But it's it's about actually having that flexibility within those days. So one of the things you're saying is um, if people are over overly focused on the things not being right, what they're really doing is demanding perfection about their situation so that they can create a more, perceived more control over their outcome. Well, actually, if the thing has already happened, they have no longer got control over it. Therefore, it's time to accept that and go, it is what it is. What's my next uh, controllable? And move to that because that's what you do because otherwise you dwell in the past and you're creating a, a, an emotional state of regret and maybe anger or sadness because you've done something that is outside of your control now because it's in the past. Even if it was in your control originally, it's now in the past. And we all make mistakes for fallible humans, but how fallible can we be and still work towards your goals? There, yeah, that's brilliant. That's actually, yeah, how fallible can we be? Because that's kind of, it's almost like the human condition in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Hugh, I've taken enough of your time, so we'll we'll leave it there, but uh, thanks very much. Is there any kind of final message you want to leave people with or links, upcoming events, anything going on? I do have a number of things that people might be interested in. I'm trying to create, I don't have time to work with people. Um, my waiting list is too long, so I'm actually trying to create resources, um, videos uh, on Instagram and YouTube. And if you want me to address a topic, basically you can look at my Instagram uh, and you will see a link. And in that link, there's a, a form whereby you can essentially ha- submit a question for me to answer and I will do a video to answer it. So that's what I'm doing to try and reach out to people and help people where I can because I quite I quite like the fact that I've spent all this time studying uh, and you know getting good at psychology and working with great people. But actually, I, I come from a community where sport's really important and I was a volunteer in two different sports as a coach and I recognise that actually it's all about giving this back. So the more questions I get in, better quality content I can put out, put out to help people and I'd like for that to be a good resource for people. So please, just if you if you want to thank me by contributing a question, that will help me along. Um, that's all I would ask. Brilliant. Yeah, I'll try and attack that in the show notes um, so people can submit questions. I, I'm sure I'll think of something. Um, so thanks very much, you. This has been brilliant. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on, Ross.